Good morning, everybody. You doing well today? Incredible day out there. You guys are quiet today. It's all right. Um, last week I told you uh, that we have a full-time missions pastor, Matt Stoll, full-time uh, city pastor, Jeremiah Wiseman. Uh, they are really excited about unleashing this church to be what our theme verse is this year, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9. Um, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, people belonging to God, who've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. And uh, in other words, we are a kingdom of, of priests, of, of missionaries. We're all missionaries. And they are having a class, an elective, I think it's three or four weeks in length, uh, designed, it'll be in November, designed to, for you to identify the specific call that God has put on your life, and then how you can be unleashed in that call, and, and, and to do it together with other people who have that same call. Again, you guys, listen, we are not going to reduce this to just going to church, holding services. Uh, we are the people of God. So, um, and, and their theme verse, Matt and Jeremiah's theme verse, um, which is what we've been preaching on the last three weeks, is Micah 6, verse 8. This is the kind of people that, that God wants us to be in our world. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants us to be as his people in the world for the world, uh, for the glory of God. And the first uh, week we looked at to do justice. Uh, justice is simply to, where something is wrong, is to make it right. Uh, it, it, it's to restore the harmony that was once in, in the Garden of Eden, to, to restore that harmony to, to our world. It's, it's to bring God's shalom uh, to, to chaos, to, to people and places that are in chaos. And I was thinking about this this week. I think the early church, if they were here and they could see, like, how we're going about that business today, I, I, I think they would shudder. Um, I, I think what they would tell us is, like, stop the politics. It doesn't mean we can't be political. It doesn't mean that we uh, cannot, that, that we shouldn't participate in the political process. But the moment that we see the kingdom of heaven as as just being uh, politics and, and, and seeing our country's form of government and, and, and America as the world's savior, uh, we are getting our eyes off the target and we are missing it. Um, so that's to do justice, to love mercy. We looked at last week. It, it's essentially to love love. And love means a lot of things. We learned this Hebrew word last week, hesed, which is a specific kind of love. It's it's the love of God that he shows to us. It's the unmerited, unconditional, unfailing uh, love of God that he shows to us that we then show to the world. Today we're going to look at walk humbly with our God. And I'll just tell you what this statement is. This is a statement about discipleship. We are to be a people of disciples who are parking our life behind Christ to walk after him, to become like him, and we're making disciples. 
And um, so anyway, I love this verse that they've chosen, and I'm happy uh, that we're looking at it for the next three weeks. So to walk humbly with our God is what we're looking at today. Let's start with this word, walk. Where does this word walk first show up in our Bibles? Anyone? Genesis. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have just done this horrible thing. They've eaten the forbidden fruit. And Genesis 3 verse 8 says, They heard God walking in the cool of the day. And they hid from God. Now both uh, Jewish and Christian scholars say that this was not a one-time thing. This is what Adam and Eve heard every single day. In the cool of the day. And in that part of the world, that would be the evening when, when the refreshing breezes begin to, to blow. Uh, here came God. In fact, it says they heard him. Like, what does it mean that they heard him? Well, they heard his feet. They heard his body uh, making his way through the garden towards them. Yeah, God has feet. God has a body. God has a face. Paul says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Christ. And so who are Adam and Eve walking with every day in the cool of the day? It's Christ. And, and to walk with someone in the Bible symbolizes deep friendship and, and deep in, intimacy. I know this from my marriage. Libby and I are most married when we walk together. And that's why we try to make this uh, a, a regular part of our lives, is just us walking together. Now imagine living in a garden where everything is good because after God made anything, he said, that's good, that's good, that's good. And to us, the word good means something less than great, but that's not what good means in the Bible. Good in the Bible means everything as God intended for it to be. In fact, the word that the ancients used synonymously with the word good uh, is, is the word shalom. And shalom is not just the absence of conflict, uh, but shalom means wholeness. It means completeness. It means everything in this state of perfect harmony. And that's what dominates Adam and Eve's world. All of creation. Adam and Eve are in perfect harmony with themselves. They're in perfect harmony with each other. They're in perfect harmony with creation. Creation is in perfect harmony with this itself. That's why there's no death. There's no suffering. There's no disease. There's no decay. There's no poverty. There's no brokenness of any kind. And the basis for all of this harmony, this, this Eden kind of goodness, is that the world had God. They had his presence, his face. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. And this walking with God for Adam and Eve, it, it was more than just the experience of intimacy with God. It's also discipleship. Because if you boil discipleship down, it's, it, it, it's most basic meaning. It's learning to walk like Christ. First John says, if anyone belongs to Christ, they are to walk as Jesus walked. So every single day as they walk with Jesus, Jesus is showing them how to walk. 
And, and the reason for this is Adam and Eve have a huge role in God's creation. It's, they're made in God's image. And they are to reflect not just back to God, but into all creation. God's glory. God's power. And in so doing, they make the whole world a garden. Now here's the tragedy of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. I mean, they wanted to be their own masters, their own saviors. And instead of walking humbly with God, they wanted to walk proudly without God. And God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. God withdrew his presence from the world. Heaven became distant from earth. Everything unraveled. Shalom was lost. The world became broken in every way for this simple reason Human beings no longer walked with God, and they forgot how to walk in a way that reflected God into all creation. And the world went dark. The lights went out. But into this darkness, there is this little flicker of light, Abraham. And God's first words to Abraham, Laklaka, start walking. We're going to walk together again, Abraham. I'm going to teach you how to walk. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, Abraham trusted God and he walked, not even knowing where he was walking to. (laughs) In fact, he walked a thousand miles trusting God. Because this walk demanded a complete trust. It demanded everything from Abraham. He has to leave his family. He had to leave life as he knew it. He had to leave his comfort. He had to leave his security. In other words, what God was saying to him is the same thing Jesus would say to his disciples. Uh, Drop your nets and come walk after me. And he did. And I want us to know, when God's call goes forth, And when it's properly heard, it is still the same. It is the call to walk, to park our life behind God, behind Christ, and to walk after him so we can walk like him. And this is how God is going to remake the world that he loves. It's going to start with him remaking us. And that's when we walk. We walk with him and we walk behind him. And God's next words to Abraham is not just start walking, uh, but it's I'm going to bless you. And that word too, like I said last week, it's, it's loaded with deep meaning. It, it means to impart the deepest and most satisfying kind of life. The kind of life that we talk about, we talk about things like transformation and regeneration and new creation um, it, it, it's that kind of life. It's the life that was lost in Eden. Abraham, I'm going I'm to bless you. I'm going to impart that kind of life to you. And the question becomes then, how, how do we experience this kind of life, this, this Eden kind of life, where we are also imparting that kind of life to our world? Like the car. It's when we hear God's call and we get up and walk and we walk with God and we walk after God so that we can walk life, 
like God in this life-giving way, in a way that puts God on display for the world to see and unleashes his blessing not only in our own lives, but into our world. Does this describe your walk right now? Are you walking with God? Are you experiencing his blessing? This life of God that that, that comes into us. Does your walk right now put God on display? Is your walk unleashing the life of God into your world? I love how God puts this to Abraham early on. He says, Abraham, walk before me. Now, anyone who knows anything about discipleship, discipleship is when we park our life behind someone and we walk behind them so we could become like them. So why is God saying to Abraham, I want you to walk before me? It's because Abraham's like a little kid, like a two-year-old who's taking his first steps and God is like his father, just He's teaching the world how to walk again through Abraham. He's going to teach us how to walk. This whole thing, from our end at least, it is about a walk. It's about finding God's path and walking it. And I think this is one of the the, the ways in which Western Christianity has been sidetracked the last 300 years. And I'm going to oversimplify uh, why it's been sidetracked um, and, and oversimplify a little bit uh, of, I'm going to give you just a little uh, history of philosophy that is also an oversimplification, but there's a lot of truth to it uh, in terms of why we've been sidetracked. Uh, this goes back to Descartes, the French philosopher of the 1600s, and, and he sought to for, for, for an absolute truth, something that he could be totally certain on, that he could build all other uh, knowledge upon. And this one absolute truth, philosophers call it the cogito. You've probably heard his famous statement. It's, I think, therefore, I am. And that was a shot heard around the philosophical world that set off the Enlightenment, where humans now became the center of the universe replacing God, I think, therefore, I am, and where human rationality replaces God's revelation as the source of all knowledge. And yes, the Enlightenment gave us good things. It it gave us the modern world, um, and, and the modern world gave us all its technological and scientific advances, uh, beginning with modern medicine that we now enjoy. But it also gave us the nuclear bomb. It also gave us extreme forms of materialism and political expressions like communism and national socialism. And the sad thing for the church is that the church adopted knowing, especially the systematic knowing, as the basis of Christianity. That faith is what you know. Faith is simply having the right answers, the right doctrine about God and his word. 
Now, I'm not here to say that that's unimportant. But I grew up in a tradition where it was all about having right doctrine. That's all that mattered. Remember when we first moved back to Grand Rapids and we started Crossroads? Crossroads had a softball team playing in the rec center. And uh, I grew up playing in the rec center. The rec center is uh, where mainly Christian Reformed churches have a softball league. Well, I was busy that year, so I didn't really play a lot of the games, but our, our, our team was pretty good, and my name was on the, 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 the roster. That's a key detail right there. Um, but we got to the championship game, and I could play. I get up to the batter's box, and the team all of a sudden says, that guy can't play. I opened my mouth and said some things that, you know, I was 35 years old at the time. Um, and I want to say this, like, I have deep appreciation, the older I get, for my upbringing. I mean, this week, uh, my football coach, Bob Blackwire, passed away. Uh, that guy had such a massive impact on my life. Um, one of the first men that I looked up to who, who believed in me when I didn't believe in myself, and, and, and that was highly transformative. Um, and just coming into that setting and, and going to the funeral and uh, seeing former teammates and teachers and coaches, and it's like, wow, that, this is a real blessing. Um, but <laughs> when I said what I said, I think I said something like typical CRC. All you like to do is... Uh, put up these fences and keep people out that aren't like you. And I mean, it just flew out of my mouth instinctively. <laughs> and then I heard someone from their team shout out, but we have right doctrine. <laughs> we have right doctrine. And... Listen, I am not prescribing a thoughtless Christianity. In fact, just the opposite. As Christians, we ought to be the most thoughtful people on the face of the earth. We need to think our faith in. We need to think our faith out. Where we're true to the name that God placed on his people, Israel, which means wrestles with God, which means it's not just about getting the right answers, but it's asking all the hard questions and wrestling with God in the complexity of the, those things uh, with, with intellectual integrity. I mean, Jesus, last week we looked at it. He said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he says, and go and learn what this means. Use your minds. Ponder it. Think about it. But if we just reduce this to doctrines that we put in our brains, and that's all it is, we're missing it. There are so many passages, like the one I'm going to read, like Jeremiah 6, verse 16, that says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. This would be a good verse for our church. Stand at the crossroads. Um, ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And good there is not just good as, well, that's good, but it's, it's Eden kind of good. And walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Rest as an Eden rest. Shalom, shalom. How do we get Eden new creation, 
the life of God to break into our life and out of our life, it's when we find the ancient path and we walk it. This is why to to a Jew, uh, faith is never just about what I put in my head. To them, faith is Abraham. It's walking. It's finding the ancient path. It's finding God's path, and it's walking it. James in the New Testament says, he says, faith without works, faith without a walk is dead faith. A Jew will never know something just to know it. If what we know doesn't change our path and how we walk it, it's worthless. And from our end, this whole thing, it's about a walk. I wish I had time to show you all the places in the Bible. I'll give you just barely skim the surface. You shall walk in the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And that I commanded you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land that you are entering. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Sounds just like Micah 6, verse 8. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. That's just the Old Testament. New Testament, a lot of times the word walk is translated out uh, where it's, where, where it's, it, it's live, but it, it, underneath that English word live is, is the Greek word walk, walk in the spirit, walk in a manner worthy of Christ, walk in the light of God's word, walk in him, walk in the newness of life, walk such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and give glory to God. See, and this is why God's people through the ages love Torah, why they love the Bible, because God's word is his instruction showing us the path that we are to walk and how we are to walk it. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. Why do you think Jesus came to the world? The ancients, the the, the first century, they they, they knew that when Messiah would come, uh, one of the things that he would do is he would show them how to walk. He'd show them the ancient path. The Jeremiah 6, verse 16, ancient path. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Shalom, shalom. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Every rabbi in the first century had a yoke. Their yoke was how they walked out uh, the Torah. Take my yoke upon you upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble at heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's right out of Jeremiah 6 verse 16. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he's saying I am the ancient paths. 
Because Jesus came to the world to show us the ancient path and how to walk the ancient path and look at how he walked. No one walked like Jesus. No one. And yeah, we, 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 we center all of our attention on, on the first and very important reason why Jesus came. He did come to show us the way back to the Father, the way back into Eden through his death and resurrection. But he also came to this world to show us how to walk so we could experience Eden right now and we could unleash Eden in our world today. I don't think there's a story in the Gospels that captures this more than when Jesus walks on water. <laughs> to us, Jesus walking on water is, again, one of his miracles that proves uh, his deity. But Jesus walking on water is him showing his rightful place in the universe. Psalm 8, a messianic psalm, says, You have made him ruler over the works of your hands, you've put all things under his feet, everything that you've created. And here's Jesus walking on not just water, but in their worldview. The sea is the to home. It's, it's where the demonic and, and, and the Leviathan and all those forces that are against God live. And, and Jesus is, is over it all. It's all under his feet. And Peter, Peter asks the appropriate question. He's parked his life behind Jesus. He's walking after Jesus so he can become like Jesus. And so he says to Jesus, does this apply to this too? And Jesus says, come, Peter. It's the first word that Jesus spoke to Peter when he said, come, lechecharai, walk after me, Peter. Jesus says, come, because here's the deal. Not only is Psalm 8 for Jesus, but it's what Jesus wants to remake in us. Psalm 8, if you know it, begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's written by David, and David probably one night is just like, just mesmerized by the stars and their beauty, and it draws his mind to his creator and how awesome his God is. But then in that moment, feeling so small, that he says, who am I, God, in light of this? What am I? But then God's word comes to him. And he says, but God has made us a little less. A lot of your translations say the angels. But in Hebrew, it's Elohim. Every time Elohim is in the Bible, it's the word for God. You've made us a little less than God. You've crowned us with glory and honor, and you've put all things under our feet. If you want to know why God made us in his image, and why through teaching us how to walk again, how he's remaking us in his image, it's so that we can have this kind of place in his creation. I love how C.S. Lewis says this, God said in the Bible that we were gods and that he is going to make good on his words if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, creature 
pulsating all with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. I'd like to add, not just reflect back to God his power and glory, but to reflect his power and glory into all creation. And how do we do this? Through a walk. We walk after Christ. And in so doing, we become like Christ. Doing justice. Loving mercy. Walking humbly after God. Think about, think about Christ's walk. Think about the path that he walked. I mean, what most stands out to you? Because he stood out. (laughs) He stood out so much that the New Testament writers said, that's God in the flesh. And I think I can easily conclude that of all the things that that stood out in in, in Christ and his walk and the path that, that he walked, it's humility. His path was humble, at times humiliating. His walk was humble. Now today in our Western world, I, I, I think humility is still a virtue. Like when we see someone who's humble, who lowers themselves to exalt someone else, who doesn't need attention, who can live in the background to exalt someone else, most of us would say, that's good, that's virtuous. But we need to know why this is, because humility in Jesus' Greco-Roman world was not a virtue, not even close. Because a Roman's ultimate pursuit was glory. The Greeks' ultimate pursuit was honor. And to the Greek and to the Roman, glory and honor were achieved through power, victory, domination, exaltation. And so to them, something like humility, which was the complete opposite of glory and honor, it it, it was weakness, it was defeat, it was was shame, it, it was not virtuous. In fact, to a Roman and a Greek, pride was virtuous because pride is what compelled a person to this virtue of glory and honor. Now, the, world, the Jews, I think, are the first people to show the world a different path, a, a different way to walk, and that's because God commanded them to be humble. Their, their, their Torah taught them this. I mean, listen to this, this again. It's just a few verses. Um, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. God mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and to the oppressed. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly, the humble. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I mean, this is all over our Bibles. 
And you see it, God does. He, he literally, he stiff arms proud people. He detests pride. And yet his heart is, is, is so attracted to humility. It's just over and over again. And why is this? For the simple reason. God is humble. His heart is so humble. I mean, even when he, he, he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. That word bless literally means to bend the knee. It's to get low, to make yourself as small as possible, to make someone else great, to magnify them. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to get as low as I can and as small as I can to make you great, Abraham, to make your name great um, so that you and your people can also make themselves small. And make others great. Then you think about how God made himself so, so small in Christ. I mean, he loves humility so much. He loves small so much that he became the lowest, the smallest. Philippians 2, which is a song they think that the early church sung, says this, Christ made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how Jesus walked. That's the path he took. Taking the very nature of a slave. I mean, the Most High didn't just become human. He became the lowest of humans. The greatest became the smallest. The Most High God, the second person, of the Trinity became the lowest of slaves? I took classes when I was in Israel, and one was uh, an expert on um, history during the first century uh, in the New Testament context, and he said no one would wash feet in Jesus' day, not even slaves. It, 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 it was way beneath them. And I think how, how Jesus, the night before he died with his disciples, took out the basin and started washing their feet. And even Peter's like, Jesus, you got to stop this. You, this, this. This is humiliating. He became a slave. I mean, the one through whom the world was made, he gave up all his rights his rights to glory, his rights to personal happiness, his rights to do as he pleased. Why? Because he became obedient. Obedient even unto death itself. Even death on a cross, says Philippians 2. Romans killed people this way. They hung them on crosses. They only did this to slaves and to the people they defeated. They didn't do this because it was torturous. They did it because of their pursuit of glory. We are the mighty. We are the powerful. We are the exalted. We win. You lose. And our God looked down on the world and looked for the most humiliating means possible 
to make it as his throne in which his reign could be unleashed. We preach Christ crucified. And as our world turns from Christ, it's becoming very Roman. It's all about creating sides and being on the winning side at all costs. We spend our whole lives thinking, how do I get big? How do I make it to the top? How can I be noticed? How can I be unique and original? How can I stand out? How can I give off a good impression and be liked? We strive to gain and get as much as we can, to be in control, to have as much power as we can. But Jesus teaches a different path. That's not the path he walked. His path, his walk, screams at the world the way it truly Become big is by becoming small. The way you go up is by going down. The way you actually get power is by giving up your power through weakness. The way you get rich is by giving it away. The way you become truly happy is not even living for your happiness, but living for the happiness of others. The way to greatness is through humility. The way you find your true self is by losing yourself. And Paul piles onto this and he says, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the small things, the little things, to shame the mighty. This is God. This is his heart. This is his walk. This is his path. The Bible says that pride is the root of all evil. Especially the evil of self-righteousness, which means I can do justice and I can love mercy all for me to exalt me. And God will look at that and say, that is repulsive. Crossroads, as the people of God, we need to stop taking sides We need to stop needing our side to win. We need to stop hating on on, on the other side. We need to stop blogging about how great we and our side is. We need to stop demonizing and criticizing the other side because he has shown us what is good. And that's to do justice. It's to love mercy. And it's to walk humbly with our God. Have you heard that call? Are you walking that path? I'll tell you the people that I'm most concerned about in this room right now, it's not the little people. It's the people who are on top or in control because historically, these are the ones who don't get it. They don't get it. They they, they don't understand Jesus. They don't understand who he was. They don't understand how he truly walked. They don't understand the path he walked. I challenge all of us to pray this courageous prayer. 
Jesus, would you show me how small I am? Would you make me even smaller in my own eyes? And Jesus, would you take me by the hand? Would you lead me? Would you lead me down, down, down? Humble me. Break me. And today, maybe some of you are going down in some humiliating kinds of ways. Some bad things are happening to you. Maybe you're going through some kind of failure. Maybe you're losing things that just make it feel like you're small and little and weak. Listen, (laughs) be encouraged. The way up is to go down. And here's the deal. If you go down there with Jesus, because that's where Jesus is, he'll make you sweeter, wiser, humbler. I promise, you go down there with Jesus, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves under God's almighty hand. And in due time, he will lift you up. Let's pray. God, humility is something that you have to push into all of us. We are not naturally predisposed to it. And so, God, would you push that into our hearts? May we look at you. May we know you. May we park our lives behind you so we can walk after you, so we can become like you, so we can be people that do justice and love mercy and walk humbly after our God. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.